Big Swinging Stocks acknowledges the traditional custodians of Australia's lands, skies and waterways and pays respects to elders past, present and emerging. This podcast is brought to you by SelfWealth and operates under AFSL number 421789 as general advice only. Because we can't take into account your personal objectives or financial situation, you should seek independent professional financial advice before making any investment decision. For more information and our financial disclosure statement, check the show notes. I want to talk about loss aversion in the context of culture. Warren Buffett is a freak outlier. Capitalism loves the idea that you're going to spend lavishly in your 20s. Do you feel that we are taught at school, we're taught at university, that you need to know what you are, who you are, and what you're going to do by the time you're 25? Money is potential to be something that you either want or need. Being rational doesn't exist. Despite how analytical the world in finances supposedly be, it's still controlled by human beings. If you can think about yourself and understand yourself, you'll understand why you react and do and behave the way you do with your money. I've talked a lot on the pod about my investing mistakes, but I don't know how much time I've ever given to the why behind my mistakes. I'd like to say I know myself pretty well, but how well does anyone really know themselves? Have you ever thought about what motivates you? What pushes you to act or not act? Is it your emotions in the driver's seat? Or is it always your head? Well, today's guest might have something to share with you about that. Evan Lucas is the author of Mind Over Money. He's the head of strategy for Invest Smart and the founder of the Lucas Review. Evan Lucas, welcome to Big Swinging Stocks. Thank you very much for having me, Alex. This is very exciting. It's as it's a bit different to be sitting here talking about this kind of stuff because normally I get to talk about analytical stuff. But my passion is, as you said, understanding what your mind does to affect your relationship. And that's probably the right word with money. And, and it's been it's been quite an interesting journey writing this book. Ah, oh, well. The book is about to come out in October, mm-hmm. and I'm really excited. First of all, let's just talk about becoming a popular fiction author from your very analytical background. What inspired you to write a book about money and emotions in particular? My background actually was when I was really little and when I was growing up, all I ever wanted to be was actually be in, in some sort of medical profession. And I found that the most important thing to me was I really enjoyed psychology. I loved it. Um, so I wasn't even going towards medicine. I was going towards psychology at school. That's all I did and blah, blah, blah. And then sort of went through university and drifted away from it. But it's always been there. And I've also always known that behavioral finance, so the, the, the study of behavioral finance is probably the thing that I enjoyed and have enjoyed the most and always have. So going away from analytical stuff, it was more about, okay, what I'd been learning over my 15 and a half, almost 20 years of being in finance was it is so very clear, despite how analytical the world in finances supposedly be, it's still controlled by human beings and it's still controlled by you and me. It's still controlled by our thoughts. So the best way to think about it and the way that anybody tells me, no, 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 that's not true. Think of it this way. When you hear about high frequency trading or you hear about you know computers now taking over, a human still program that computer. A human being still is behind that computer program. So if the algorithm they're using doesn't work, that's a human error. And that's because the human decision-making is still from up here uh, in your head. And and that's why the inspiration came from the point of view is that it's even more apparent that people overthink or underthink or getting confused by money when you go towards the individual person. Because you, you know personally that if you're thinking about 
you know, what your finances are over the next couple of years, you're going to be influenced by things. Do I have kids or not? Do I want to buy a house or not? Do I have a partner that's coming up or don't have a partner that's coming up? Am I going overseas? But all, all these personal things that are decisions that you make for emotion, that you things that you make for your own personal gain, not gain, it doesn't matter. That decision more influences what you do with your money than anything else. And that's what inspired me to do this is that because I love this so much, because I love the psychology, I live and breathe markets, I, I wanted it to come back to a point of view that going, okay, if you can think about yourself and understand yourself, you'll understand why you react and do and behave the way you do with your money. And that that's the most important thing because once you get hold of that, you'll be able to do things that are what you want to do but with probably easier, I think is the word, not better. I don't I hate that word. Better with easier outcomes for for you because there is never a right or wrong answer. Some people don't want to make a ton of money and that is completely understandable and fine. Some people do and that's okay as well. And as soon as you start accepting that that's the answer, it's not about this is the better way, this isn't the right way, or you know you shouldn't do this and you should do this. It's not about that. It's what's best for you and your mind will govern that. So I want to ask that question back to you because that is a central tenet of the book. It's sort of a bit of a self-awareness around your own relationship with money. So what does money mean to you? This is a brilliant question and I'm going to try and say it without sounding too overly pompous. And the reason I say that is the word for what money is to me is potential. Now, that that word brings up some things. And the reason I say that is that the underlying principle of money is a transfer of value, right? So, a $50 note sitting in your wallet has the potential to give you $50 of value of something. But if it just sits in your wallet, it's just 50, it's just a piece of paper, right? It's an IOU, IOU a service. So at the moment, we're doing this fantastic podcast and Alex, you've got an incredible following and all that kind of stuff, which is brilliant. So I am obviously using your value to benefit me and vice versa. But that is how I look at money is that money is potential to be something that you either want or need or find happiness in or benefit from. So that that's that's what money is to me. So it's the potential. It also means that if I have the money that I want to do for the future, my potential is is therefore there. So the way I look at money is that it is that's intrinsic value in my world in my personal thing, the potential it gives me is financial freedom. And now in the book, I talk about this a lot because psychology shows that the biggest, most fundamental human thing, according to the American Journal of, of Psychology, is autonomy. Um, and that that's where money, in my view, comes into it. It gives you the potential to have the autonomy you want to do, to go and do the things that are important to you. And they are specific to what you do. That is not meaning, you know, you go and become Warren Buffett or it doesn't mean that you go and, you know, become somebody like Elon Musk or whatever it might be. If that's what you want to do, bang, go and do it. That is absolutely your thing. But everybody's different. And so, therefore, the way I look at money and the answer to, in my view of that question is that all money is, is going and transferring potential of one value to another. And so, I, you know, my value is I want financial freedom and my money gives me that potential. Um, and that's how I look at money. That's really fascinating. I'm so curious about, and I suppose one of the things that stood out to me when I was reading the book was you talk about the battle we have as humans being irrational and how that mm -hmm. pertains to our money. And I'm curious for your view, do you feel, first of all, do you feel like you battle 
with irrationality with money or do you feel like you're yes. a higher you've got you've okay you haven't surpassed that great that makes me feel a lot better no now tell me what do you like first of all maybe give us an example of how you've what decisions you've made with money but then i also would love to know from you what tips do you have for people like if we know all this behavioral science let's like actually use it to improve the way we deal with money and what can we yeah. do so in terms of that irrational talk, this is this is the other thing about sometimes why behavioral finance annoys the living hell out of people because it uses words like irrational, right? So the reason I say that is that human beings under psychology are classified as irrational, right? We do things that are technically against our own interests. Interests. The reason for that is because we aren't just making a cause and effect decision, right? It is not. We have hundreds of thousands of decisions going on in our brains that we subconsciously make without even thinking about it. It's the beauty of being a human. And because of that, the word that everybody uses, and this isn't my word as well, and I hope this out very clearly, that's why the word that people try and use is that we are reasonable, right? We are reasonable because we are not, the other word that these can put in there as well is rational because being rational doesn't exist in the fact that if you were rational, you'd be a computer and you would probably be one of the most boring people on the planet. Um, <laughs> so it's it's about being reasonable with what you do. So and answer your question, am I irrational with money? Hell yeah, absolutely. Because I will make a decision on the spot that if you think about what the, again, getting the word back, potential back in there, I could have done with that money, would have been better options. So an irrational decision will be actually today, I'm going to go on the internet and buy myself an overseas holiday, like things like that. So for instance, there's my example, 2019, just before the pandemic hit, my best friend rang me up and 24 hours later, he and I had bought tickets to go to Japan to go and see the Rugby World Cup, right? Completely irrational with my money, but the reasonable side of me saw that as value. It's just, and that was value to me because it's an experience, right? And again, getting back to that word of potential is that I turned the money that I'd earned into an experience that I saw value in. Now, some people won't see that. And I talk about that in the book as well. You know, if you're a, somebody that sees money as a saving tool and as of an actual physical value, you'll hear that and say, well, I wouldn't do that. And that's fine. That's completely fine. So, yeah, getting back to the other parts of your question about how you get better at it. So this is the other thing that I want to point out to you is that better, worse, all those kinds of things are very hard to define when you talk about behavioral finance because, again, it's more about understanding your decision-making. So we talk about what we call biases, in ingrained biases. You don't realize you have them. Those biases are those ability to make those hundreds of thousand decisions instinctively. They are ingrained psychological thinking. Um, so you know that when you walk into a room of new people, how to behave. You just naturally know how to do it. That's your biases doing that. It's also the same if you were going to meet now the king, not the queen, um, and you would know how to talk to him and obviously behave in a certain way. Whereas if you were to meet your, you know, your lifelong friends or your family, you're going to behave in a bit different way, which is going to be much more casual, obviously. So with your money, it's the same sort of principle in that one of the best studies I think has ever been done is by a Nobel Peace Prize economist in Daniel Kellerman. He is one of my absolute heroes in terms of what I do in my world. And one of his biggest things that he established with Amos Travesky was what's called loss aversion. And it's one of the strongest biases. Oh, this is in, a great experiment, actually. It's yeah. a brilliant experiment, isn't it? And it, it's one of the, if not the strongest bias that we have 
in terms of behavior when it relates to money. It, it's it's the most clause and effect in the fact that you are much more attuned to losing money, so value, the potential or something, than you are by gaining it. And what they've shown, you know, the stu- I talk about it in the book and you can read up on the study, but another way to look at it is that, you know, they can go even further in saying that you are more attuned to losing $100 from your investments than you are from making 200 So although the net effect is 100 bucks up, you will more concentrate and I've learned this through doing what I do and having clients and being around clients and all that kind of stuff, they are always going to be attuned to the loss. So getting back to making yourself, adverted commas, not better but more aware is the word about yourself is how do you get around that? And so I try and use the adage of a kid's sort of you know paradigm of the elephant uh, and you know what I call the elephant paradigm because the old kid adage is how do you eat an elephant or well, one bite at a time and why we say that is that human beings also when they do their psychological thing is that they silo things they put things into compartments it makes it easy to process things which makes complete sense the issue when you do that with your money is that you don't realize where your overall money position is you concentrate on one individual thing so getting you know more aware of your money can reduce the issue of something like loss bias or other issues that can affect your decision making in a, in a more positive way so that you don't get upset by going and doing that you know spontaneous purchase that I talked about with going overseas that, that when you start to look at your overall money that spontaneous pur- purchase actually makes sense and it's fine it's Especially when it aligns with your values. Like it's one Bingo. thing to do like a Vegas trip and be like, well, I actually hate Vegas and drinking and gambling. So what was the point of that? But and and doing probably not remembering a, a single and day. And probably not remembering it. But if you do it where it aligns with your values and it, you can make it a reflective exercise, um, you know, take out your credit card statement, highlight the purchases that you still feel hold value to you and were intentional as opposed to the ones that weren't. Um, but I want to talk about, you talk about Kellerman, but there's a lot of other interesting uh, concepts in the book. And one of those is the impact of culture on thinking. And I want to talk about loss aversion in the context of culture, because there is an interesting uh, nuance there that different cultures treat it in different ways. They do. Um, And what I will say before I start with this, the big caveat in this is that cultural finance is really, really new and it's highly contested. So, there are certainly the reason for that is that it's not as easily inverted commas proven as you know you know psychology or anything that's sort of on that sort of level of science because they normally drill it down to this is one this is our experiment this is our independent variable and this is the outcome culture the beauty of culture is that it is so broad with so many different independent inputs to it blah so that's my caveat but let's get it back to your, to your question there, Alex, and why it's beautiful. So what is interesting is that particularly loss aversion in Western societies is much, much more acute because we tend to live in nuclear families or nuclear scenarios. Um, we don't use our money collectively. So the example that they use is that if you look at you know collective societies, they are probably not as affected by a big loss because it's a group amount of money. Um, and the group will support you. So you're not all of a sudden finding yourself in a scenario where the loss that you've experienced as an individual is so much more acute to you because it's it's all of your money, all of a sudden it's gone, what do I do? Whereas the collective society in culture actually goes and rallies around you. Now, there is an offset to this. There is an argument that that can actually create a level of speculation, I think is the correct term to use rather than sort of gambling around what they do. Um, and so that a safety is- safety net there. 
Yeah, because there's a safety net, they're not as upset with losing money and they can therefore lead to unfortunately bad behavior so there is there is a push pull to it but they are much much better at dealing with loss than than western society what's also very interesting and further studies taking loss aversion to another level though is this every single culture collective individual masculine feminine whatever definition you want to put on it through using you know gert health she's you know cultural dimensions whatever it might be every single culture does the same thing once they get loss and that is that they try and get it back and will actually spiral with it in that once they've made a loss, they'll then try and recoup that by trying to get into things that are even more speculative, which creates even worse loss and so on and so forth. And explains why gambling exists. It I mean, explains that's really, why gambling yeah. is such an addictive yeah. thing across the world, mm. no matter what culture you're in or who you are, it is the same. And because it's exactly that, that, that loss aversion still holds true and the ability of human beings to always try not to be wrong because that's what happens when you're losing, right? There's a sense yeah. in your head yeah. that you are wrong. Something has gone wrong. I've made a wrong decision. I want to fix that. So let's double down on the wrong decision. Let's double down and keep yeah. going. Maybe we even keep going further. And so that yeah. that is that is the catch with it, which has been fascinating to do. And culture is beautiful because the other thing I, I talk about in the book with regards to culture is that I actually try and get you to think about culture even more sort of sort of low down granular than that, just yourself, right? Look at your family. What is the culture of your family? And if you can understand that, it'll understand and it'll give you such a good base to understand how and why you think the way you do because there are numerous studies that show that children have pretty much almost most of their sort of money personality, inverted commas, and behaviors formed by the age of seven. So if they can see your yeah. parents behave in a certain way, they are more than likely than not to do that and carry it through later in life. might be dormant in their behaviour, but it will pick up as soon as they start having to deal with it. So I love that you mentioned that uh, behavioural finance and cultural finance are quite new concepts that are sort of still being explored. But cultural uh, the cultural lens on business has been around for a very long time and Hofstede sort of mm -hmm. pioneered this research. I was reading about this in uni 10 years ago and I was so interested to see this applied to finance because it just felt so logical to me. And I take your point that, you know, as with political science, as with any kind of study of people, it has to be applied at the population level. So this is not an indictment on anyone personally and certainly yep. you're you're so, there's such an important concept to, to reiterate that individually these concepts may not fit you to a T. You may lean one way or another, but at a population level, we can see these trends. And I'd say from reading your book that in Australia, we lean towards the Western society as an individualistic society as well, as mm -hmm. opposed to collectivist communities like China. We lean towards impatience. We lean towards mm -hmm. indulgence and individualism. So let's talk a little bit about what investors can do. Obviously, you know, these are broadly applicable concepts, but how can you combat those impulses to build long-term wealth? What are some practical tips? Yeah. So I agree with the, the definition that you've given in terms of what an Australian sort of, you know, and a stereotypical, again, you've used the yes. correct terms. Let's yeah. Everybody will be different. And, you know, the beauty of Australia is that we are quite multicultural and there is all that different stuff. The, the tips that I, tr that I sort of talk about and the way to look at it is that can you actually pick up on other cultures you know, benefits to yourself. So, as I said to you, we are individualistic and we think in the nuclear family in terms of what we do. And we are impulsive. We tend to, you know, as a society, we are more likely, you know, pre-COVID, 
to some extent, not now, but we probably will go back to it. We are spenders. We tend to think about it ourselves. We don't really take good care of our finances as as a as a as a nation individually as we probably should compared to some of the other parts of the world. So, if that's the case, can you concentrate on going again? Do it start simply and so look at your family, right? So who in your family is good with money and who isn't or who in your extended family is good and who isn't? Why I start saying extended family is that once you start to bring the the term family into it, the likelihood of those people wanting you to benefit is going to be high, right? And you can actually then start to- (laughs) And you can also start to then get to the point of going, okay, can we work more like collective societies where they do work as a unit? So I talk in the book around, you know, there is a thing called scrovels, which is a South African term, um, tenement, which is which is a Caribbean term, where they work as a community. It's like a co-op, um, and they all put money into it, and and doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work for you. What I'm trying to mention with these different cultures is that they value money as a unit, as a group rather than at the individual. As collective so, wealth, yeah. And we've only, as a nation, probably started to wake up to that fact. And the, the one I use here is the bank of mum and dad, right? This term that you keep hearing about the bank of mum and dad to buy a house is that it's probably the way to argue it in that if you can work as a bigger family, so not you and your partner or you, you, know, you and your partner and your children or whatever it might be, if you can start going out of that, you know, that inner circle and getting slightly larger, then all of a sudden you can grow your wealth by you know collating your money because again it's just simple you know compound interest and economies of scale the bigger pool of investment funds you have the bigger returns you're going to get i mean i put in there and i deliberately do this i show you the chart of warren buffett's wealth right and now this guy's an institution in terms of how he's invested he started when he was 14 he's 92 now um but the majority of his billions that everybody talks about have only been around in the last 20 years of his life, um, not the first 63 um, because of compound interest. And it's because he kept collating and collating and obviously you know, reinvesting. Now, that's a simplistic version of what he does. He's obviously an incredible, exceptional person in investing. But again, he's, he's the argument to the idea that if you can start thinking about your wealth as a collective scenario and investing in the whole, like I say, with the elephant paradigm around the idea of it's not just shares, it's not just fixed income, it's not just cash, it's not just your property, it's all of that together. You'll all of a sudden find yourself feeling the financial freedom that that money is behind you and the potential it can give you. But it also means that you're probably getting a second kick, and this is my argument as well. The second kick is you're benefiting your parents and possibly your partner's parents and your sister or your brother or your cousins if you want to go even that far out. All of a sudden, the collective feeling that all of you are moving in the right direction, it's all part of that psychological thing. I mean, because again, what I'm trying to say here, there is no right or wrong answer uh, and that needs to be very clear because I know there's a lot of personal finance books out there that basically says, this is the way you should do it, full stop. Mm. Um, And if you don't do this, (laughs) it won't help you. Yeah. I don't want to do that. What I was trying to do is to get you to be self-aware and once you're self-aware, you're going to be so much more attuned to how you can better yourself off. Mm. But I want to talk about this concept of community because it doesn't come up in the personal finance realm very Mm -hmm. often, if at all. But I love talking about this because I do believe that if you are just getting wealthy yourself, that's not the point. Like There needs to be Mm. some level of community benefit, Mm -hmm. even if it's just your immediate family. So I was so excited to see you finally get your mum 
to invest in the book. And you talk a little bit about <laughs> yes, that. But I, I wanna do. I wanna chat to you about what did you say to her? How did you convince her? I mean, she was probably in her like fifties or sixties when she first started. So what did you say? How did you get her on board? So <laughs> No one thing. So I need to point this out to you, okay? And the reason for that is that I had been trying to convince my mum to invest pretty much since I took up this as a vacation, which was in my 20s. Um, So it took me a very, very long time. And every time we discussed it, there was always the same excuses. I don't have time. It's too hard. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, You know, not today. All those kinds of- Classic. We've all been there. Bingo. And stereotypical mm. lines. Absolutely. And and then, you know, you, I would point out very clearly, hang on, well, I, I do this for a living. I'm very happy to do it for you. And she'd be like, oh, that'd be great. And then all of a sudden, we're like, so do you want to do it today? Oh, no, I can't. I don't have time. And it, it was just a self-perpetuating problem. Um, and so there was no one thing. And the sort of the, the backstory to this is her father, my grandfather, who – I know you and I have spoken about this offline before, Alex, is he was an incredible retail investor um, and very, very disciplined. He you know, constantly contributed to his own personal portfolios. He was always using his money in a really, really advantageous way for growing wealth, um, et cetera. But none of that culture, none of that behavior passed on to his four kids, um, yeah, including my mum. So, so interesting. what finally happened is what normally happens with people is a shock. Right, something triggers you to actually take action, and for Mum, it was COVID um, because all of a sudden, you know, she probably again part of the reason why she didn't need to, and this is something I argue in the book quite clearly, is people, particularly certain groups of people, when they have something level stability of employment or a business or what have you, where money just comes to you fairly regularly without having to really work for it, um, and I'm not trying to sort of. You know, I'm I'm scared. I'm generalizing there, but just just think about it from the point of view that if you believe that money will always be there because you work or what have you, or however, it's so easy to put this off. And so, Mum was one of those people because she had an income stream that was pretty secure. Blah blah blah. COVID hit. It wasn't secure. All of a sudden, it wasn't there. She didn't have that financial potential behind her and that financial freedom. That if all of a sudden a COVID pandemic hit that she had the ability to do what she does every day of her life without thinking about it because the money all of a sudden slightly stopped because her business was furlongs for you know the health reasons. So that was the trigger. But then it came to, okay, Evan, I'm here for you now. Help me. And within two weeks, we had her up and running and she now comes to me and goes, why didn't I listen to you beforehand? I said, well, I've been telling you for 17 years. For that to do, but yeah. it was a trigger event. So again, unfortunately, it's not a great example, but I, th- I think it's really important to understand is that it's, it gets into the culture. It gets into behavior as well in that mum's example is one to show that you're never too young to start. So mum was in her mid to late 60s when she started. Um, she does... You know, she contributes to it on a regular basis, which is fantastic. All the really good behaviors and and what you should do with investing, she now does, but it took me a long time to get there. So there you go, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> Don't wait for COVID to happen again. Yeah. But it's also never too late to start. Um, and, and she's so happy with it now. And, and, you know, it does exactly what she hoped it does. And, and it, it's providing her a safety net, even with volatility and all the rest of the stuff that sometimes markets give you. She knows that how it's worked over the last two and a half years of getting it started. She's, she's so much happier with it. Oh, good on her. I love to hear those stories. And I love that people will just start 
you know, it doesn't matter that she didn't start in her 20s. Something is better than nothing. Investing something is better than nothing. And just, I just want to pick you up on that because I, I mm-hmm. think this is the other thing. There is this belief that you need to start at a certain age. It's like the sooner the better. I agree with that to some extent. Do not feel upset that you haven't started, right? Just don't because I've had that question before. So the way I answer that is that even if you're in your 40s or 50s or 60s, right, let's let's take the 40-year-old as the interesting one because we forget the millennials this year turn 40. The oldest millennials, 1982ers, turn 40. Now, I'm not one of them. Um, I've still got a couple of years before I hit that level. But what I want to point out (laughs) is if you're 40, right, you under the, the average Australian living standard, right, if you're a male, you've got 44 years. If you're a female, you've got 48 years, right? Left. Of life. According yeah. to the year of life expectancy. So, in, in arguments and money terms, you're really young. So, if you need to start today and you're in your 40s, congratulations. You are going to be on the path to a better financial freedom because you've got so much more time. And, and that's the one thing that I, you know, I also try and equate in this is that the, the ability for humans to understand the concept of the continuum of time is really, really hard because the impulse is that we do what we need for today, today, because tomorrow is just another day that we need to do for tomorrow and so on and so forth. We are geared physiologically to the idea that you know all we need to do is provide shelter for ourselves, food for ourselves, and that's pretty much about it, right? So that's, that's mentally, physiologically what we're geared towards, but we live in a lifestyle and a time where that's not how we can think. We have to think about tomorrow next week, next month, next year, 10 years, 20, 30, 40 years from now. And it's psychologically completely against what we are. And I also think that it was quite powerful. I read somewhere, you know, people, for a lot of reasons, people think that when they reach any kind of age, like over basically 30 people, like, well, that's it. You know, I, Hmm. I am what I am. I won't change. And so people will not, you know, not even just investing. They won't go to uni. They won't change careers because they're like, well, kind of sunk cost fallacy. Like I've already gotten this far. What's the point? Well, the point is, I kind of love to think about it backwards, right? You're either going to be 80, right? Because that's coming. You're either going to make it to 80 and you will have started at the point you are at now and therefore you will have accumulated whatever wealth you accumulated in that time. Or you won't have started and you're still going to be 80. You know, the time is still going to go. You're just not going to have anything to show for it. And you're going to think to yourself, I really should have started when I was 40. So Mm -hmm. I love hearing stories about older investors starting. And I love hearing about investors starting at different ages because I think, well, representation is important always, but I love to reinforce the message that you don't need to be 19 and starting today. Warren Buffett is a freak outlier just begin, I think is yeah, the Yeah, and he didn't message. start at 19. He started at 14. And yeah, this was I mean, his 14. Like- number, this was his number one fundamental image-defining thing that he wanted to do. That needs to be pointed out. And I make that really clear. Warren Buffett is somebody to absolutely be studied and learn his techniques, but do not try and emulate him because you are almost guaranteed, and I'd go as close as 99 point, as many decimal points as you want in the nines mm-hmm. to 0.5%, guaranteed to fail that, right? Yeah. Because- he but that's not ta- a reason not to begin because he, he's an institutional you- investor and you're a retail investor and it's completely different. Yeah. You don't need to be outperforming the market like Berkshire Hathaway does every year. You just need to be growing your wealth. The time is on your side is absolutely the argument, but your time and how much time you want to accumulate your wealth is also independent to you. Yeah. All he's ever wanted to do was just turn from 14 to 92 and continue on his continued path of growing <laughs> that size. So he is a different beast on that aspect. And, and getting back to you, I want to ask you this question because I think this is a fascinating thing you just spoke about, which is 
Do you think this belief around that we need to know what we are by the time we get to our, you know, early sort of twenties is an ingrained bias problem that we have in our culture? Because that that's the question for you, is that do you feel that we are taught at school, we're taught at university that you need to know what you are, who you are, and what you're going to do by the time you're twenty five? Yes. And I think part of it is capitalism. So I think there is a very ingrained media bias that you need to test everything, be everything, travel everywhere, figure yourself out by the time you reach your mid-20s. And first of all, that presupposes that in your late 20s, everyone gets married, has children, does the rest of it. That we know is not true anymore. But Mm -hmm. I also just think capitalism loves the idea that you're going to spend lavishly in your 20s, when you have, I think, especially in that period of like when you start professional working and before you have kids or a mortgage, the most amount of disposable income that any generation has ever had, right? Millennials have vast amounts of disposable income because we're not buying houses, so because <laughs> we can't afford it. But I um, I do think it's really damaging because I don't think that we ever stop growing and I don't mm-hmm. think we should ever limit ourselves. Oh, I'm 30 now, so that's, that's it. I'm bad with money and I have to be bad with money for the rest of my life. Uh, I think, you know. Yeah. So the, I, I want to interrupt you right there. That's also a really inter- interesting date uh, and, and age 30. Because the other thing about that, I find that that's the period of time in your working career where things can get rocky. And why I say that is that you've probably been on a fairly linear path in your growth between the ages of 25 and mid to early 30s, where you go and get you the job that the university degree probably gave you and blah, blah, blah. But all of a sudden, you start running to that point where you can't keep growing on this sort of 45 degree linear path and roadblocks happen. So, you you know, you can become redundant or you can all of a sudden find yourself in a crisis with regards to how you are. Um, or just not and, earning anymore. Or you're not just earning anymore. wages, yeah. And also that disposable income you talk about there, Alex, can disappear, Right, and that that is also another trigger. And I, I, getting back to my book and talking about this is it's something I again put in there deliberately. It's a personal experience I've also had where, you know, I was going through that process, and then I was at a place that I was working where I found myself really quite constricted. I didn't have the level of autonomy that I thought I was going to have at that age, um, and then it all of a sudden left, and I was out, and that money that I had. You know, that was supporting me that I wasn't thinking about. Getting back to your original question, right back about my rationality with my money was that I was always expecting it to be there. And all of a sudden, this income stream from my job stopped. What I realized once I was out is that I actually had been making, you know, rational decisions, reasonable decisions by investing and having savings and blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden, that's my trigger. That was my trigger to realize that I actually had financial freedom and I had the ability to actually create a career and, a, and an area that I wanted to do because I loved it, because I wanted it. And that is where I'm now out. And that that was my learning that and why I asked you those questions. The learnings that I got from that was was exactly that if you can put in place behaviors that it's even just having a savings account or it's, you know, just something that is there as a backing, that sort of money is in the background that, you know, the, it can become that freedom potential that you need it to be, that all of a sudden you'll get a much better sense of yourself and a much better sense of where you are because what I was, and I'm, it is a very stereotypical thing. There was a part of me that I think was probably using my personality and my personal identity around my employment and my job and who I was and what I was doing. Oh, the millennial affliction. Yeah, exactly <laughs> that's, right. And, and that's so, a whole episode. <laughs> yeah, and that's why I don't think it's it's you know everybody goes through this. 
every single person. And if you are listening to this, you are not alone and you are what I found the best thing to do about it. And this is the other thing I'm tr- we're, we're both doing this right now, probably subliminally telling you, talk, talk to people, listen to people. You know, it will help you so much getting through those challenges that the world will throw at you. And if your money is behind you, it will just make it just that much easier. Oh, I love that. That's a really, really, really powerful message. And I think I loved your metaphor of uh, taking one bite of the elephant at a time. I think you can apply the same thing to your finances. Just little things that will move you in the right direction and move the needle and give you a little bit more of a safety net moving forward. Mm -hmm. But let's go to my favourite part of interviewing, which is the rapid fire round. So really quick answers. One word, if you please. I feel there's a stitch up coming here, but okay. Oh, I love it. I love immediately my guests seize up and it's just like, oh no, (laughs) used Mm -hmm. to talking in narrative format. So tell me, what was your worst financial decision? Bought long year. Okay. Terrible stock investment that <laughs> I put uh, t- at the time. I mean, now it's not a huge amount of money to me, but at the time it was massive, right? So, you know, I was in my early 20s and all the research suggested that I should do it and blah, blah, blah. And I made it the largest yep. holding in my portfolio and it was rubbish. Oh, favorite thing to spend money on? Travel and my family now. Oh, first investment. Boring, BHP. Nah, so- good one. Have you still got it? Uh, no, because again, I used it in and out. So, I mean, if you look at BHP over the period of time that I've invested in it, which is basically when I started in my early 20s and I'm in my mid to late 30s, um, BHP does this. It goes up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down, up and Mineral down. Mineral cycle, yeah. Bingo. Um, and, and, you, and I love it for it, right? So, I bought BHP probably around 23 bucks, sold it about 35. I have bought back in several times but yeah in answer to your question the first one bhp because it's biggest the baddest and it makes complete and utter sense most recent investment doesn't have to be financial either yeah equities if you don't want to share so no no i'll share so most recent investment was property um and the reason for it no no no, it's it's actually made complete and utter sense uh and even with what's going on right now my view on property is i've got 30 years um so I needed to diversify myself and property mm-hmm. with my last investment. Oh, amazing. So you you're that's very un Australian of you, Evan. Everyone does it the other way around, but I love to hear it. I love to oh, hear it. Oh, property different- was last for me. You, this is the thing that's really weird also that we're, I'm going away from here and I'm not giving you one answers, but Again, my money decision was that because of what I did and what I loved, I actually mm. went the other way. I was I was into equities, into markets. Mm. Property was my last thing. It was, and the only reason I bought property was because we needed a place to live, not because yeah. of, it was an investment. <laughs> oh, it's also very un-Australian of you, actually, with our <laughs> obsession with property. Uh, cryptocurrency or central bank digital currency? Central bank digital currency. I thought you'd say that. Classic. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Lump sum or dollar cost averaging? Dollar cost averaging. Beautiful. Um, Spoken like a true finance nerd. <laughs> yeah. Dollar cost averaging every single day of the week. Um, and twofold. It also getting back yeah. to what I talk about. Mm-hmm. The, the habit that dollar cost averaging creates is mm-hmm. just as beautiful as the fact that dollar cost averaging is a much better way of entering the market um, than, than a lump sum. Because it's a, a lump sum is a one-off thing. You don't develop a habit out of it and you get it at a price that could be all sorts of things and therefore you're more likely to be open to loss aversion because your lump sum goes up 
great, but all of a sudden it falls and you will feel that and you will never come back to the market because you're seeing a bigger loss rather than going, actually, I'm just going to constantly dollar cost averaging. So my, my view on it is twofold. It's the behavioral finance side of it, but dollar cost averaging is better for your, beha- for your habits and also because it's actually better financially as well. Yeah. All right. Final rapid fire question. Where can mm-hmm. people find Mind Over Money? Uh, in all good bookstores and online. So you can do, <laughs> it, it will be Booktopia, Amazon, Dimmicks, Readings, anything that you can think of, it will be there. Um, Fantastic. And, and I'm, I'm sitting here still slightly pinching myself and in disbelief that I have a book coming out. So thank you it's so much. Really, it's, a, it's a nice cut through actually, I think, that it talks about some concepts that no one else is yet talking about, which I always love to see in the personal finance community. So congratulations on the new book. Thank you for joining us on Big Swinging Thank Stops. you for having me. This has been oh, fantastic. I've loved it. Thank you for joining us on the show. And to our audience, thanks for hanging out with us on Big Swinging Stocks. See you next week. Thank you.